So good, Peter. Thank you for that. These scouts, these are our, uh, our resident experts on the wilderness, right? Uh, it's good to have you guys guiding us today. Anybody watching the Olympics yet? It's, it's, it's pretty spectacular. I'm reminded that life is an endurance sport. That you don't start out at the Olympic level. That you start out at T-ball. It's not really a winter sport. Uh, on the on the T-lift. <laughs> and you work your way up to downhill skiing. And you probably wouldn't expect to see a workout routine in the Bible. And yet that's what Peter just read for us. Deuteronomy 8 describes a workout routine that, is, that God gives us when we find ourselves in the wilderness. And that's where we find ourselves now. Moses speaks of the heart four times in what Peter just read. The idea is that when we lift our heart repeatedly over time in the wilderness, we begin to strengthen it. It begins to grow, increasing capacity. It grows in grace. And so Moses, in his eyes, the wilderness, it's not something we welcome, but it's almost like an exercise machine. St. Paul says, train yourself in godliness. And he uses a word there, gymnasia, a Greek word, which is where we get our English word gymnasium from. It's like the gym. He says, train yourself in godliness, for while physical training is of some value, godliness is valuable in every way. Holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Spiritual workout. And so Moses says, the Lord your God disciplines you. Now, I want you to understand, he's not using the word there as punishment. It's not that the Lord punishes you. The wilderness is not a punishment. The, the word is being used in the sense that a parent would instruct or train uh, or work out uh, a child so that they gain in capacity over time. Now, you may know Deuteronomy is a collection of sermons that Moses preaches just before Israel goes into the promised land. They stand on the edge of the Jordan River and he's probably thinking, remember I've told you about the two rock incidents that frame the wilderness experience and he strikes the rock with a stick in both and the first one goes well and the second one goes very poorly because he's bitter. His heart is hardened in the wilderness and I think he remembers that so that Israel knows they cross over into the promised land, they'll have a stronger heart. A heart shaped not by bitterness but by grace. Tested in the wilderness. Jonathan Edwards says, the essence of virtue is a certain beauty of the heart. This is what God wants to give Israel, a beauty to their heart. And the question then is, how do we participate in that? How do we go to the wilderness as though it's a gym and start working out and gain capacity? Well, I wanna suggest to you a four-step cycle, okay? It's a workout routine for your heart in four steps. And we begin with step one and it's grace. Stand in grace. Let's look at these four verses that Moses, in which he mentions the heart. The first one is in verse 5, back on page 145, as Peter showed. If you want to follow along, look at verse 5 again. Here's the heart in grace. Moses says, Know then in your heart that as a parent disciplines a child, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Know then in your heart as a parent. Uh, there's a parent. There's a parent and you're a child. And this parent is doing what good parents 
do. Holding on to you, carrying you, as Moses said earlier, like a, a child on the breast of a mother through the wilderness. This is grace. Remember I said grace is a place for the undeserving and the honor of God. You do not work your way into the arms of a parent. You do not. Um, how did you become your parent's child? What did you do? I'm not talking about what they did. That's a different message. What did you do, right? Nothing. What could you do to no longer be your parent's child, right? <clears throat> Nothing. This is, this is grace. God doesn't ask anything from us. He just said, I put my name on you. I, put a I made a place for you in my heart. We call that grace. It's a place for the undeserving. One of my children takes out my car, wraps it around a telephone pole at high speed. I'm going to be a little bit upset. Mostly I'm happy that they're still alive and they're still my child. There's, there's nothing they can do. And so the Lord says, I want you to know when you're in the wilderness, you tend to think, I've been disenfranchised. Where did God go? I've been abandoned. I'm an orphan. He goes, absolutely not. It's actually in the wilderness that we discover what God does with his children. And that is he disciplines them. He instructs them. He trains them. He cultivates them. This grace that holds us is also the same grace that grows us. When your child uh, takes her Cheerios and throws them on the floor and smears peanut butter and chocolate defiantly in her hair, what do you do? You go, oh, that's so cute, honey. Go get the camera. Let's take a picture, right? She's a toddler. But, but if I do it at 56 years old, you're like slowly backing away, okay? And we see this on airplanes these days. Uh, you know, men like me who are just like totally acting like a toddler, throwing a tantrum. And the fact is, that's not appropriate behavior for a 56-year-old. It is for a toddler. And the idea is that Israel was young, the, the images of a child. Out of Egypt I called my son, my firstborn son. This is the image of, of the Exodus. Got, I, I claim you as my child and you're young and you're going to young, act young. But by the time you get to the promised land, I need you to be mature. You're growing up as my child. So there's this process of maturation. I mean, when Jesus comes to his disciples, he doesn't say, oh, so cute. You guys are good. See you later when I return. He says, oh, no, I love you. Now, follow me. Follow me. We're on a journey to grow you towards maturity as daughters, as sons of the great high king. That's not going to be easy, but it's going to be good. It's an interesting thing. At the very beginning of the Exodus, uh, in Exodus chapter 13, even before they cross the Red Sea, there's a direct line to the promised land from Egypt. You can, you can take this route from Canaan. And the Lord says to Israel, I'm not going to take you that way because apparently there were these fortified cities. They'd come in armies. There'd be adversity. There'd be challenge. And they were not ready. So he says, I'm going to take you around the long way. It, it would have been an 11-day journey. 11 days. It ends up being 40 years. Why? Because they were not ready. And the Lord said, I'm going to take you around. I'm going to take you into the wilderness into this place, holding you in my grace. You stand in my grace as you walk through the, the wilderness. But I'm going to grow you. We're going to work it out together. So, by the way, there are two inferences from this. First of all, it's that, you know, God will never lead you into adversity without first equipping you for victory. That's the implication of that. God will never leave you into adversity without equipping you first for victory. Because they weren't equipped and they weren't going to have victory. And so he leads around. 
That's a good implication. The second thing is when he leads you in the wilderness, there is an opportunity for growth, to mature, to grow up as a child. Paul says, I don't want you just to be drinking milk. I want you to grow into the place where you can eat solid food. I want you to mind the depths of grace in the challenges that we face. Know then in your heart that you're secure. Know grace. God is treating you as children, the writer of Hebrews says, when you face adversity or trials. It may not seem pleasant, but it will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's Hebrews 12, verse 7. I got you. I've got a plan for you. We'll get through this, and I will use this for good. Grace. Stand in grace. No grace in your heart. Do you know grace in your heart? Do you really believe? Are you standing on grace? And then it's out of God's grace that we face the challenges. Take it to the gym. Then we come to the second step, and okay, here's the challenge. Here's what we find in the wilderness, and that's crisis. So once you stand in grace, be prepared because you're going to face a crisis. Let's look at the next verse in which Moses mentions the heart. Here's the heart in crisis. It's Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. Moses says, remember the long way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Why? In order to humble you. Why? In order to test you. Why? In order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. You know, heroes oftentimes say, you, you never know what you'll do until you're in that situation. We hear that from police officers, from uh, fire personnel, from soldiers. You never know what you're going to do until you find yourself in that situation. And that's true for us. Um, so often, what we call faith or religion is kind of a thin veneer on our own self-righteousness, our own self-sufficiency. And we're just kind of cruising along, thinking life is good and we're doing great. Just, but it's like driving one of those Disney cars, you know. You're, there's a steering wheel and you turn it, but it's actually on a track. <laughs> you only know until you get off the track. And he goes, oh my gosh, this is harder than it looks. And so this is what happens. This is a test of the wilderness. This is a crisis. It's meant to, to expose your heart, to know what is in your heart. Is there grace in your heart? Are you trusting in that grace uh, that is there in your heart? What I want to suggest is, I mean, this is exactly what we do when we go to a gym. We test ourselves. We bring ourselves to the limit. Why? Because we want to know what we can do and expand what we can do. And this is what the Lord does in a crisis. So I want to help you see what you can do. Sometimes it's what, what, what you think you can do on the basis of your own strength. And when you get against a crisis, it's a divorce, you lose your job, you experience an addiction that you thought you could manage and you can't, and you all of a sudden realize, I don't think I can, I don't think I can handle this. I think I don't have enough grace in my heart for this. And that becomes a moment in which we turn back to the Lord, right? God exposes our heart in the wilderness in order to draw it to him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your straight your paths, straight your paths. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in me. There's a transfer that happens from ourselves, relying on ourselves, to God. And the crisis becomes the opportunity just to see, oh my gosh, there is a choice to be made here. This is a good thing, but it's a hard thing. I'm told that the Chinese character for crisis takes two brush strokes. One represents danger, 
and the other represents opportunity. And that's what we find in the wilderness, danger and opportunity. And the danger threatens our own independence, our false selves, our pretenses, our need to be independent and self-sufficient. It's all threatened. We face that danger in the wilderness. But we also face the opportunity of the Lord saying, give me more share of your heart. Expand your heart's capacity for grace. And we do that in the wilderness. This is what the Apostle Paul says Christ is meant to him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he, he talks about a particular crisis that he doesn't name. We don't know what it is. It, it could be that uh, he was in a riot. They were stoning him or something. Or, or it could have been depression. Whatever it was, it was life-threatening. And he says this. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly unbearably crushed that we despaired of life itself. So he's like, this is life-threatening. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death so that we would not rely on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. He said, I think the purpose of this for me was I felt like I was going to die so that I could realize, hey, I am in the presence, I'm in the grace of one who actually takes death and turns it into life. And, he, what, and what he's doing, this is an opportunity for me to go, to see my heart, I've been relying on myself, and that path leads to death, but if in the face with that option, I can now transfer my trust from myself to him, all of a sudden, man, my limits start to expand. My capacity expands, because now I'm trusting in the one who raises the dead. Even if I die, even if I die, he will raise me up. This is why the older I get and the more challenges I face in life, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, it's just becoming my life verse. Here, the Lord says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. There's enough of it for you, right? For power is made perfect in weakness. And what he means there is, my power is made perfect in your weakness. Don't bring me your strength. Wear yourself out in the wilderness so that you can bring me your weakness because then I'm going to tank it up with TNT. And then the world's going to see what God can do with a woman, with a man, fully consecrated to him. So God exposes your heart to draw it to him. Face a crisis. Face a crisis. First stand in grace and then face the crisis. Let it see what's in your heart that you can learn more how to trust him. Well, what do you do once you see what's in your heart? That's the third spot in the cycle. It's the word. You hear the word. Hear God's word. Now back to the text in verse 14. Here's the heart, where Moses mentions again the heart, in God's word. He says, do not exalt yourself, which means literally in the Hebrew, he says, do not let your heart rise up. By forgetting the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You notice how many times the Bible says, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. We forget what story we're in. It reminds me of the senility prayer. Have you heard of the senility prayer? Uh, it says, you know, may I have, God grant me the senility to forget the people I never liked anyways. Uh, the good fortune to run into the ones that I do and the eyesight to know the difference. Right? That's a senility. A lot of us are praying that these days. We forget. 
We forget what story that we're in. And here Moses says, I want to remind you. And he tells a little bit of this, the story. It's kind of like the gospel for the ancient Israelite. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, dot, dot, dot. This is the narrative. He said, don't forget the story that you're in. You're in a redemption story. The crisis is not the story. The redemption is the story. The Lord who's leading you through, that's the story. The promise is the story. And so the insight here is a crisis gives you an opportunity to tell yourself a better story. Tell yourself a better story. We're all storytellers at heart. Jonathan Haidt, who wrote The Happiness Hypothesis, says, says this. He says, the, the pathology of depression is that while ruminating, the fancy word for thinking, Okay. The depressed person reworks her life narrative by a negative triad. These, these three messages. I'm bad, the world is bad, and my future is dark. That'll lead to depression. You chew on those messages long enough, and man, you are in a bad story with a bad ending. But Jonathan Haidt says research is also showing that people who respond to trauma with resilience are people who incorporate their trauma into a better life story. They fold this into a better story. They do the work of what he calls sense making, which is reinterpreting, reframing the trauma in a new story. Now, if you're not a believer, you can do this. You don't have to be a follower of Jesus Christ to do this. Um, when you find yourself going, this is just a thankless job for people that don't deserve anything. You could, all, you could reframe, you could, oh, or you could say, is this a great opportunity for me to really serve? Or you could say, man, this relationship is just sucking the life out of me. You could say that, or you could say, what a gift to be able to come along somebody with unconditional love. Like this is really growing me. It's really demonstrating who I am, right? You, you, you know, you can do that. But if, you're, if you are a believer, what you hear is this good news. This is what the gospel is good news. It's what God is doing in the world, what God has done in Jesus Christ and what God will, uh, will do at the end of history because he's acting decisively on the behalf of all creation, reconciling us to himself, reconciling us to one another, reconciling us to the natural order. I mean, this is a story. This is the story of all stories and we get to live inside of that. God is our God. This God is redeeming crisis. This God is making all things new. I mean, he's giving me water from Flint Rock. He's giving me bread and manna from heaven. This is amazing. It's a better story. When Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days, the evil one tempts him, assaults him with messages, basically. And what does Jesus do? He quotes Deuteronomy 8. He says, you know... Uh, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What is he doing? He's going, I'm not in your story, Satan. That's not my story. I'm in a better story. I'm in Israel's story. I'm in my father's story. I'm in the story of the one who said just a moment ago, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Telling himself a better story. And I'd like to suggest that our lives are shaped less by our circumstances than by the stories that we tell ourselves. What do you tell yourself? What do you tell yourself? In this text, Moses says, don't let your hearts rise up. And their hearts are rising up 
because they're believing the wrong narrative. Do you remember the narrative that Israel keeps saying, and there's the murmuring in the wilderness? What do they say? Has he led us into the wilderness in order that we could die here? Is, is, this, is this what this is all about? He got us out of Egypt to take us into the wilderness so that we would die here. Some of us feel like we might not make it out of this wilderness. We're going to die here. And that's the story we tell ourselves, right? And Moses is saying, that's not, that's not your story. That's not your story. Remember, remember the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of slavery in Egypt. Uh, remember the story that you're in. You can trust me with your life. Christ is an opportunity to tell yourself a better story. And I gotta say, it's oftentimes when we get into crisis that we're aware of the deep scripts, the deep narratives, the implicit narratives that are shaping our lives, right? We have lots of implicit narratives that shape our lives, whether that's around family or work or relationships, uh, race, politics, whatever it is, we have these narratives. And the problem is not all of them are true. We've shown ourselves to have a propensity to believe lies. And this is the place of the enemy in the narrative of Jesus. It's so interesting now as we think about the movie Don't Look Up or Russian disinformation or fake news. What is it about us that makes us given to things? Right now we live in a day where there are algorithms that promote stories, not because they're true, but because they either play into our fears or our desires. And we're getting lost in that. And the only antidote I know to that is to have somebody outside of the whole system who actually knows all and loves all. This would be the word of the Lord breaking in to say this is the truth. And that is the claim about this book, the Bible. When you read the Bible, you should expect to be confronted by messages that are hard to believe. That's because we believe counter messages that are implicit. And the point is, reading the Bible is to confront those messages with a better message. That's why we're doing what we call immersing ourselves in the Bible. And if you haven't gotten into immersed yet, I hope you will and read the Bible with us. We're trying to, to avoid not like just pulling facts and truths out of the Bible. We're trying to put ourselves into the Bible to live inside the narrative, to understand we are characters in somebody else's story. The story is not about me, actually. It's not about you, actually. It's about God. And that's a better story. And when we find ourselves in crisis, we're going, you know, these scripts that I have, these things that I believe, I, I think they've not been serving me well. They haven't been working. And if you read the newspaper, you go, maybe our scripts aren't exactly working right now. We need some better news. We need good news. And that's what Jesus is about. It's not superficial. It deals with the depths of evil, but transforms it. So uh, we need to hear the word. Stand in grace. Face the crisis. Hear the word. Remember what story you're in. And then there's one last step, and that is faith. <clears throat> Walk in faith. Take a step into the story. Okay, so back to the text, verse 17. Here's the heart responding this time in faith. Do not say to yourself, and again the Hebrew says, do not say in your heart, do not say in your heart, my power and the might of my own hand have gotten me this wealth. That might work well when everything's going great, 
my power did this. When everything's not going so well, that's going to work against you. My power did this. There's no grace in that. But listen to the text. Do not say to yourself. Do not say in your heart. Ah, now we're talking to our hearts. Now we're saying heart, self, remember grace. Heart, self, remember the story that we're in. Heart, self, take a step into that new story. Take a step upon the promise of God's word. Step onto that even if you can't see firm ground rising beneath your feet. Believe that God's promises will support your weight. Talk to your heart so you can walk with God's power. Not I did this, my power, my hand, but he did this. He is doing this. He will do this. This is a little different from what we say in the gym. In the gym we say, go for it, you got this. But here in the wilderness, God's wilderness, we say, go for it, he's got this. And this is what starts to move the limits, right? You come up against your own limit, it's okay, you're a human being. But then you see the promises of God and God says, really? Go for it. I'm good. You can trust me. I'm good for these promises. You step on that. You're stepping on solid ground. You're stepping on rock, okay, that will weather the storms of life. Walk in faith. Interesting, the real danger that's anticipated in this text by Moses is not that things will go poorly in the promised land. It's that things will go well. And I think as Americans, we really have to hear this message. L- let me read it one more time. He says, when you have eaten your fill and have f- built fine houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks have multiplied and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, do not say to yourself or literally in your heart, my power and the might of my own hand have gotten me this well. Don't say that. Don't say that. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. Okay, I mean, this, this is, you know, we have to recontextualize it. This, Israel was promised physical health and wealth. We're not in this life, but <clears throat> what we are promised is to become people of the promise, to become people who live with God, and God lives with and within us. I'm gonna bless your socks off, the Lord says to you, and when I do, I want you to have the character to know this is not something you did, it's what I'm doing. I'm the one who gives you the power. By the way, this is actually what we mean by stewardship. When the Bible talks about stewardship, that's what this is. It's becoming spirit-empowered stewards of God's grace. This is my work in you. This is my abundance in you. This is my wealth in you. All of this is mine. I give you the power to get what you have. And so live with that reality. Lean into that reality. Trust that reality. Step into that reality. Walk by faith, not by sight. By my promises. Faith in the Bible always means trust. It's the same word for trust. It's not about facts or what you know. It's about relationship and how you trust the one. And as a steward, God has trusted you with something. God says, you you trust me with your life. I'll trust you with my power. You trust I will keep my promises. I, I will trust you to walk in my ways. The more you trust in me, the more I can entrust to you. This is the thing, so I'm not sure if I can entrust you with very much, Israel, in your infancy. I mean, if they had gone right into the promised land without cultivating grace in their hearts, they probably would not have stayed on the land. The first threat that comes along, they'd be gone. Or the first success they got, it's me, I'm gonna take it somewhere else. They never would have stayed. So God needs to know that we'll trust him so he can trust us with more. Otherwise, the abundance will throw us back into our false narratives. This is done by the, hand of my, by the power of my hand. 
So we're given the promises of God's words so, he can, so we can hear, trust, and step. That's the routine. Hear, trust, and step. Hear, trust, and step. Walk in faith. Talk to your heart. Talk to your heart about your God, about his promises, so that you can walk with God's power. And then when we do this, we find the cycle takes us all the way back around to grace. Grace, crisis, word, faith. More grace. There it is again. This is the desert cardio. It's what I call the desert cardio. It changes the conditions of our heart so that we will not age in bitterness at the end of this pandemic, not age in bitterness at the end of our lives, but actually grow in grace. I first stand in grace. I just have to know it in my heart. I stand on grace. And then I face a crisis from that posture. I let that that crisis expose my heart. And then I ask myself the question, what story am I in? What story am I in? I help my heart to remember a better story. I hear the word. And then I walk in faith. I step into that story as a character. I talk to my heart about God's promises and step out on them. And then do you know what happens next? More grace. I'm back around because, oh my gosh, look what he did. I thought there was no way through. And yet he made a way where there was no way. He was so faithful to his promise. I'm going to trust him with, this is God's grace. He's got me and, I can, and I'm going to trust him with more. And we, and we keep growing. This is the dynamic of the Christian life. This is the dynamic that keeps your heart soft before the Lord. This is the dynamic that will allow you to grow in grace as you grow, grow in years. So ultimately, the beauty of the heart that Jonathan Edwards is talking about when he's speaking of virtue is beauty that comes from opening our hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, he is our maker who has come from heaven within creation into our humanity to experience and address our fundamental crisis, to reconcile us to the Father, to redeem our brokenness, and to restore the fullness of our humanity to God's original intent. So you know that good feeling you get after you've taken a run or a bike ride or been at the gym, that good feel like, ah, oh, just good. That's what we're going for with Jesus. That's what Jesus is inviting us to, to rest in his grace. So the, let me close with his words as uh, Eugene Peterson translates Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30. And I just pray that you'll hear this as an invitation to you personally uh, today as I hear it as an invitation to me. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come with me, Jesus says. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Let's pray. Jesus, we are weary and heavy laden. And so we say yes to you today. (laughs) Yes, yes. Thank you for bringing us here. This is what we needed to hear, that you haven't abandoned us, that you're with us in the midst of this, and actually that you can turn this situation into something bigger, more than we can ask or imagine. We know we can't do that, but we throw ourselves upon the one who can. And we thank you so much for the goodness of the news in Jesus Christ, for his person and work. It is him before whom we freely bow down and worship today. In Christ's name, amen.